Welcome to Tooled Up Education's Researcher of the Month, where Dr. Cathy Weston selects a paper from a notable researcher that will be of interest to parents and school staff everywhere. Tanya Manchanda is a PhD student in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Oxford. She brings with her a wealth of academic experience, having earned an M.Ed. from Harvard University and a B.Sc. Honours from the University of Toronto. Her research is centred around adolescent development, the social brain and mental health, with a particular focus on understanding the impact of friendships on young people's mental health outcomes. Tanya is currently working on investigating school-based intervention programmes that aim to improve mental health outcomes for adolescents with the involvement of their authentic social group. How are you, Tanya? Hi, Kathy. I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on here. Very excited to talk to you today. Thank you. And well, we just mentioned some of the work that you do in that biography in terms of investigating school-based intervention programs. And in fact, we're going to highlight one of those papers that has been freshly published as part of our Researcher of the Month feature. And that's called Investigating the Role of Friendship Interventions on the Mental Health Outcomes of Adolescents, a Scoping Review of Range and a Systematic Review of Effectiveness. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about where this paper's published first and how it sort of came about, Tanya. Yes. So this paper is published in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health. So this paper came about because when I started at Oxford, I knew that I wanted to look at friendships and um, I knew that I wanted to look at friendship interventions and the role that they play in schools and on adolescents' mental health. So I went out to explore the literature and to see what's out there. But one of the difficulties that I ran across was the term friendship is actually quite convoluted in the literature. So friends are often referred to as peers peers actually have a different meaning in um, peer intervention literature. So they, they don't refer to an adolescent's authentic social group, as I say. They actually can refer to, you know, an assigned buddy who may not be an adolescent's friend. And, and it's actually just somebody who might be a little bit older, has had the same experience, and so is assigned to help out an adolescent. So I ran across this problem of not being able to find the relevant literature and and just really running into difficulties finding it. And so I knew that you know, a review article kind of containing all of the different types of friendship interventions that have been implemented to date was definitely necessary in the field. So this article is the first of its kind, and it highlights all of the the papers that have been done looking at adolescent friendship interventions and kind of summarizes them in a way that makes it digestible and is a really good starting point for anybody looking to explore friendship interventions uh, in schools, especially. And Tanya, tell me how many sort of countries did this, you know, involve interventions that were sort of um, being used? Yeah, so, um, so this paper actually was only able to find English speaking countries. Um, That's the only place where these interventions have been looked at. I think there was one intervention found in Japan, but there were really the interventions were really only found in Australia. The majority of them were in Australia. Then there was a few in the UK and one in the US. And I think there was one in Japan and that was it. So most of them were actually concentrated in Australia. And an obvious question is that's fascinating. You know, why do you think that's the case? When I was reading your paper, I was thinking, are these countries, for example, that would typically experience higher levels of sort of bullying in school? You know, what would be the explanation for that? Yeah. So 
I guess one of the reasons why I thought that, you know, Australia might have been a hot spot was, you know, with obviously Headspace being super popular in Australia, which is the app. And then um, also Australia itself is, is you know, this, this isolated country, you know, they're out on an island. And so I think making sure that the people around them, you know, they have these close social bonds with the people around them. I think that's quite important. So I think that was probably one of the reasons why it became popular in Australia. And then, you know, I'm not entirely sure why this wasn't explored in other countries. It could just be that uh, different school systems in, in different countries can lead to just different interpretations of friendships and, and maybe increased bullying might exist in Western countries. So that's something that I'm still kind of exploring. And, and this paper is a really good starting point for that. So within the title of the paper, it talks about a systematic review where you've assessed the sort of the studies that existed and looking at sort of the efficacy of friendship interventions. But only 18 papers ended up eligible for inclusion within that review. Can you sort of tell us a little bit about that sort of process of eligibility? Yeah, I can. So what we did was first I conducted a scoping review. And the reason why I chose to conduct a scoping review is, uh, is again, like I mentioned, because the literature was so convoluted and there really wasn't much information on the types of friendship interventions that may have existed, I wanted to make sure that I captured everything that existed about friendship interventions. So that includes, you know, the type of apps that may have existed or any sort of conference proceedings about the topic. And, you know, I even ran across a call to action paper, which was a call to action paper for friendship interventions, which was quite interesting. So once I kind of figured out all of the papers that I could have potentially included in the scoping review, and that may have been candidates for the systematic review, I then made sure to only include the papers that were looking at an actual intervention that had some sort of control trial or some sort of trial going on where they assess the intervention and a paper where, you know, the results of the intervention were also kind of evident just because I wanted to actually capture you know, the intervention being used in a setting rather than just, you know, read about a call to action or, or read about the potential app. Like I wanted to see, has this intervention been effective? Um, what's the feedback been? How's it been applied? So that's how I kind of sorted it out. And interestingly, we're talking about friendship interventions, but you discovered that general mental health and well-being interventions were the most popular, didn't you? Yep, I did. So what I did find was that these friendship interventions didn't really include the friendship intervention part as a primary outcome. So oftentimes helping out a friend was the secondary outcome of a mental health literacy intervention, for example, where they're teaching students about how to identify mental health distress in themselves or in people around them. And then, you know, supporting a friend um, and really intervening was a secondary outcome of that paper. And I, you know, I decided to include these papers because again, because the literature is so limited, it's a still helpful starting point to understand what exactly has been done in and around friendship interventions. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because it's almost as if these were attempts to sort of create a positive culture in a school of caring about other people or exploring other people's, you know, feelings. So very much a sort of mental health literacy program. Yeah, exactly. And that's actually what we found. We found tons of mental health literacy programs. And actually, almost every intervention did include an aspect of mental health literacies. So, you know, in one way or another, almost every intervention was trying to teach these adolescents about mental health and, you know, what mental health means, how to identify the signs of poor mental health, 
So mental health literacy was a relevant theme kind of throughout all of the interventions that were found here. And a question just about the sort of the themes that emerged. So I've mentioned that these were interventions that promoted sort of mental health literacy, but also they supported, the, it was about supporting help seeking. Can you tell us a little bit about that aspect of those studies? Yeah. So help seeking was another theme that was identified in these interventions that I found, specifically supporting help seeking. And so some of the interventions focused on first teaching the adolescent about the different types of mental health illnesses which may exist, how to spot them. And then for some of these papers, the second step was to support help seeking. So whether that's help seeking for themselves or help seeking for a friend who may be displaying signs of mental illness. So, you know, the objective was really to build confidence in adolescents, you know, teach them about where they can seek help from. Because oftentimes, you know, adolescents are kind of unaware. They're like, okay, well, if we encounter somebody, if we encounter a friend who's going through an eating disorder, for example, who do we tell? So, so some of these papers really focused on, okay, this is how you can seek help for yourself. This is how you can seek help for a friend. And then as a result, they found that some of these interventions were successful in improving an adolescent's confidence to actually seek help. It's very interesting because I think when I was reading that, I was reflecting on the fact that teenagers, when they have a little bit of agency, when they feel like they belong in a culture where help-seeking is encouraged and supported, where they feel they can help another person in distress or it makes sense, doesn't it, intuitively that, you know, they want to be in that position of being able to help, you know, in that position of agency. Yeah, exactly. And actually, one of the, the papers that I was just talking about that was on eating disorders, one of the things that they focused on when designing the intervention was when adolescents were given the presentation, which was the intervention, they were actually made aware of the fact that, you know, it's very important the role that they play in helping a friend who may show signs of an eating disorder. And so really reminding adolescents of this agency that they have and the role that they can play in really helping somebody deal with an eating disorder, that's very important because they're more likely to take it seriously. And it sort of speaks to how friendship is defined, isn't it? Because th these sorts of interventions were very much focused, I suppose, on on things like mood and noticing signs of mental distress. And But what about aspects of positive psychology or, you know, help talking about the joys of friendship or did that ever come through, you know, the social connectedness or any, any other aspects? Yeah, so there were, I think there were about two papers that discussed social connectedness. So that that was a limited topic, but it was really interesting to look at because that is what I was interested in. I was interested in seeing if any of the interventions actually tried to build social connectedness or foster social connectedness among individuals. And yeah, so some of them did. And I think I think that was very important and that should have been something that was included in, in the other interventions as well, you know, talking about the importance of feeling socially connected and positively talking to a friend. I think that's very important. I think eight papers that you looked at were solely focused on general mental health and well-being as interventions. Um, and some were led by trained teachers in school, whilst others were led by, I think, external experts. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because this is something that's come under quite a lot of scrutiny. Uh, you know, who's best to deliver this sort of content and how that sort of impacts on how young people receive it? 
Yeah, I can. So again, that that was one of the things that I'm interested in looking at further, just to see if there's any differences in the way that the intervention is delivered and how best to deliver this interventions. So while some interventions had external trained professionals come in, whether this, this might have been a counselor, come in and actually talk to the students, some had a mini training session for teachers, and then the teachers were asked to deliver an intervention. So I didn't compare the effectiveness of individuals who would come in versus the teachers just because the numbers that we had were so small and the variance was so large. So it would have been just comparing, you know, one paper with another multiple times, which wouldn't have made much sense. But I think going forward, it's really important to understand, you know, what type of intervention would work best? Would it be a professional who comes in or would it be a teacher who's trained? In my personal opinion, I think that if, you know, if a teacher is delivering an intervention, the teacher should be trained to deliver it prior to delivering it because I think they can provide the best support when they're kind of made aware of the concerns which may arise or when they're delivering it in a way that's most appropriate. So let's talk about some of these interventions, because I'm sure teachers listening in particular will be very interested to know, you know, what the interventions are. And I think one of the ones that you mentioned was the mental health first aid intervention, which I'm quite familiar with. Can you just tell us a little bit about that and what you sort of had noted about it from your work? Yep. So one of the interventions was the teen mental health first aid intervention. So this was an intervention that was delivered in Australia. And basically, this was provided to adolescents with some activities and some vignettes that were led by an external instructor. And uh, the teen mental health first aid intervention included three kind of 75-minute classroom sessions. And the one by heart and colleagues in Australia actually also looked at some training for suicide prevention. So it was mental health literacy, but also some peer support training for suicide prevention. And this intervention has actually, you know, been found to be used across across lots of different sources and actually also been used in adults, but this one was adapted to be used for adolescents. And what we did find was that students who received this training, they were actually more likely to report improved recognition of one, suicidality, so that that's the mental health literacy coming in, but also they reported being able to appropriately respond to and provide first aid intentions towards a peer at risk of self-harm than the students that were in the control arm of this trial. Yeah, I've done the adult version of that course, so I can completely understand why you would feel quite empowered after it as a young person and not afraid to ask people sort of questions about how they're doing and feeling. A second sort of intervention you looked at was help out a mate. Was that the sort of an Australian one, which was meant to sort of increase knowledge about depression and anxiety for trained adolescents? So that's a peer led intervention. Yep. So the Help Automate intervention, again, was an intervention that was delivered in Australia. And this kind of looked at the same kind of aspect of making sure that that students felt empowered to help each other anytime they came across, you know, a student who was who was showing these signs of mental distress. So again, this this included the mental health literacy. Um, students were obviously taught to understand what are the signs of a peer or a friend going through mental distress. And then what are the appropriate ways in which they can help them? And um, I mean, there were so many different interventions that you looked like. Another one that you looked at was five classroom lessons delivered over three weeks. You know, there, there's so many different ones, but I'm, I'm sure most teachers listening would love to know which one really impressed you or what you think out of those mental health and well-being ones 
was striking in terms of its efficacy or, you know, impact? Yeah. So one of the ones that really impressed me was the teen mental health first aid intervention, just because that one seemed to be really promising. One, the way that it was delivered and two, the way it was compared against a control arm. That seemed to be very promising. And, you know, in the UK, we don't really see these mental health literacy interventions for young people, for teenagers, whereas it is popular in Australia and it's shown to be successful. So I think, you know, an intervention like that was quite promising. And, you know, if it's been successful in Australia, it most likely would do well in the UK as well if it's brought here. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, yeah, must find out if it is here because I know that it's here for adults, so I'm, I'm not sure about teenagers. Now, other interventions you looked at were the theme was around improving help-seeking mm-hmm. attitudes for, for teenagers and their friends. And I think one trial you looked at evaluated the quality of the HFA again, reporting, you know, and whether they were likely, you know, to help a friend, to help them seek out. And again, those interventions, aspects of the MHFA yielded those positive results, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And actually, one of the things that I want to point out is that just thinking about the interventions that I looked at, among the ones that seemed to have positive results, one of the trends that I noticed was this aspect of interactivity seen across the intervention. So, you know, whether the intervention was remote or whether it was in person, if the intervention included this kind of, you know, acting out a scenario or showing vignettes where the adolescent can actually see, you know, a hypothetical example of something happening, those interventions did yield positive results. So, you know, I think in implementing an intervention in school, I think it's important to really make sure that adolescents kind of get an example, you know, even if that's a hypothetical example, whether that's seeing their peers act out or role play a scenario, or whether that's seeing like a vignette of a hypothetical peer on a computer screen, um, actually, you know, display some of the mental distresses that they've been taught about. So I think seeing it in practice is really important. Yeah, that's an incredibly important point. Can I return to something you said about interventions that focused on eating disorders? I think you covered one that looked at eating disorders in adolescent girls. I think it was a brief classroom lesson delivered by the school psychologist with 13-year-olds with the skills necessary to identify and support potential eating disorders in friends. It provided them with sample language for how to support a friend, make them aware of the fact that friends turn to each other when under mental distress stress and the importance of support and guidance. It's quite interesting, isn't it? I think for a lot of schools, that would be quite a scary intervention to put in place because there's always that fear of suggestibility versus sort of explicit support, isn't there? Um, Tell us a little bit more about that, if you can remember that particular intervention. Yeah. So this intervention, it was implemented in a school in the USA. And again, like you said, this was a girls only school um, and it was a private school. And this intervention was a brief intervention, so it included one classroom lesson. And they actually did address, you know, this kind of fact of suggestibility. And the way that they made sure to kind of combat this was that they they only included language which was not suggestible. So they the researchers report that they that they knew that, you know, talking about eating disorders in a specific way, um, we're talking about appearance or or physical appearance, weight in a specific way can be obviously detrimental to adolescents, especially adolescent girls. So so the language that they used and the way that they delivered it was in a way that that they tried to make it not suggestible. 
which I think was quite important. And the fact it was delivered by a trained clinical psychologist is obviously really important, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And then another thing that this intervention did was that they made sure to really emphasize, you know, the the harmfulness of these eating disorders and the fatality rate that's associated with them. And then, like I said before, they made sure to let these students know the important role that they can play in making an adult aware of if they see a friend with disordered eating, they want to make sure to report that because they made sure to make the students understand how serious these eating disorders actually are. And they also said that, yeah, a friend going through disordered eating is usually unwilling to ask for help. And it's if you don't look at these signs, it can be quite hard to tell. So so they did place um, heavy emphasis on the high lethality rate that, were, that was associated, again, with these eating disorders, um, and also the short and the long-term physical and psychological damage associated with both disorders. So sort of teaching early intervention strategies and that it's a good idea to spot things early, which is definitely the case when it comes to eating disorders, albeit I think that's a really fascinating lesson that I can imagine was so carefully thought about and developed. Yeah, exactly. And then they also made sure not to share any negative messages again about food or discuss body image or self-image or any sort of discussion about weight loss techniques. Um, and then they made sure not to glamorize or normalize eating disorders in any way. Like they they made sure that it was it's very serious. This is a mental disorder which can lead to, you know, lots of harm. Okay, something else that really struck me. I can't believe we're getting so much out of one paper. It's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. Some of the interventions that you looked at were focused on friendship building and combating isolation, targeting sort of isolation and loneliness, which is incredibly interesting, particularly when you look at the sort of context of universities, which I'm really interested in, that sort of transition to university. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit, I think there were a couple of interventions that you looked at there. Can you remember any of those in particular? Yeah, so I can talk about a university friendship building intervention that I looked at. So this intervention was looked at it included first-year engineering students, so an incoming cohort of first-year engineering students who had obviously just come to this new school and hadn't yet formed their um, social circle in the school yet. And what they did was they assigned these university students in this kind of social support network of friends. And it, this was a group-based intervention, so they included just a day of activities and spending time with this kind of new group that they'd assigned these students to in the hopes of building a supportive support network. And the reason why they did this was because they had previous research which suggested, again, that you know university students really benefit from having a support network, and it can be really helpful for their mental health and well-being. So that's what they did. And then what they found, though, was that at the one-year follow-up, so when they followed up with them next year, these support networks that they had formed had actually all vanished. And these university students had different support networks. So the researchers hypothesized that while the initial French formation may not have lasted, what it allowed the students to do was it gave them this kind of temporary support network and then allowed them to find their kind of more permanent support network. And then they hypothesized that that is what you know, ease the transition into university. And so even having, you know, these kind of short-term friends was helpful. Um, so even though they didn't last long-term due to whatever reason, um, again, because they were only assigned in, in groups, it wasn't like they were matched by any sort of attributes or anything like that. They didn't last, but they were helpful in the end. 
And there was also an intervention called Groups for Health, which recruited undergrad students and looked at those who'd actually screened positive for psychological distress. Mm -hmm. So that was very interesting, isn't it? That seems such an intuitively insensible thing to do, to sort of screen for psychological distress and sort of create that social connectedness and efforts around that in response to that. Yeah, so there was an intervention that screened for psychological distress and actually found individuals who had reported some sort of distress and recruited those individuals. And what they did was they intervened and then had each of them play a helper and a listener role. So they were given like these stressful scenarios to kind of go through and they went through them together and then they reversed the roles. So they basically were in dyads and then both of the individuals got the opportunity to to kind of play the helper, but then also play the receiver, so be on the receiving end of support from a friend. So they did that to kind of see if that kind of mitigated any of their distress. And this one was quite interesting. That one seemed to be reasonably successful, didn't it? It improved mental health, well-being, social connectedness immediately after the intervention and at the six-month follow-up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it did. And what country was that one based in, Tanya? Groups for Health. That must have been in a university I don't know the country off the top of my head, but let me see if I can find it for you. It seems like an incredibly interesting one to sort of for universities to kind of look into. Yeah. But then again, it's, it was the only one intervention of its kind. And this is, this is kind of something that I found throughout these, all of these interventions that I found was that they, they really only existed in this one instance. So I think apart, apart from like There was one intervention where it was repeated twice, but um, it looked at substance abuse, but two different kinds of substances. Because these interventions are so new and they were only implemented once, it's really hard to tell, you know, how they'll play out. And one of the beautiful things about this paper is it sort of brings them together in that sort of synthesized way and can inspire perhaps, you know, uh, future studies looking a little in, in a little bit more detail in replicating some of those, you know, programs in different countries and things. Yeah, exactly. And then also just to let you know, the groups of health intervention was from Australia as well. Very interesting. Yeah. There was another intervention, Cognito Face to Face. Now, I was this really piqued my interest because it looked at the use of simulations and virtual peers to train adolescents. So how did that work? It sounded like it was reasonably successful as well. Yeah. So this intervention took place in the United States. And, you know, Cognito is a tool that's been used by individuals from my lab before. And this was an online suicide prevention gatekeeper training intervention. And basically what they did was they put the trainee adolescent in a simulated college social environment in the Cognito app and got them to interact with virtual peers. And while they were interacting with virtual peers, the trainee had to identify peers who might have been at risk by engaging in dialogue with this virtual peer. And then just having the ability to make a decision on whether or not a professional referral would be needed for this peer. And then if they decided that, yes, this peer is going through mental distress, needs a professional referral, then they'd be able to refer their peer to a professional for help. And then again, the, you know, the idea behind this was that doing this sort of simulation, acting this out, you know, is practice for if they experience something like this in real life. Yeah. It seems incredibly interesting, that approach. I'm really, I think that would be, you know, I think one of the things that emerges is that sort of idea of real life scenarios and applying knowledge 
to vignettes or stories or situations is it seems to be very beneficial for young people. Yeah, exactly. And and like I said before, like I think it's really important for young people to really see an example of a situation which might occur because it may not always be obvious to young people what type of situation might occur in front of them. And so, you know, they may not be able to visualize that as clearly. And um, especially in a school setting where, where, you know, young people can learn in different ways, I think it's really important to have some sort of example shown to them that, hey, something like this may occur in real life, and that might help them identify it better. You might be interested to know that one of the things we're developing in Tooldot was a sort of a digital citizenship, digital well-being program for sort of 11, 12-year-olds. Okay. After reading your sort of paper, it inspired our team to think about ways in which we can incorporate that aspect of sort of developing young people's agencies around being a good online friend, you know. So how can you help that young person, you know, if they're doing some behaving online in a particular way or they've accessed content they shouldn't see? So how can you support that peer? So I think that sort of element is very interesting to us. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. And, you know, one of the things that, again, that that I really feel like I wasn't able to find in a bunch of these interventions was this kind of differentiation between online behaviors and online friend behaviors. So so, you know, if if they see a friend posting distressing stuff online, like how can an adolescent help if it's on social media? What can they do? I think I think that's very important. And I think, you know, with the rise of technology, obviously, and social media and all the different types of social medias, and especially after the COVID pandemic, where everyone was so used to being online, the definition of friendships has really changed. So these online friends are different. In-person friends are different. And that's something else that I'm exploring right now. So, yeah, I think that's very interesting. And for sort of, again, schools listening and they're, you know, they want to, I know many of them have an appetite for, you know, putting in place interventions or ideas or programs that can help young people be kinder to one another or, you know, be better friends to one another. I think your paper allows them to think about if they were developing internal programs, what some of the features or ingredients that might be quite beneficial, but also a few caveats, you know, around thinking about things, who's delivering it, you know, is it evidence-based, you know, what are you trying to achieve? Would there be any other little sort of tips that you would give schools who want to do something a little bit more holistic across that school community? Yeah. So I think, I think something that schools can do is obviously, you know, we understand that friendship is vital to healthy adolescent development. So I think, you know, even in classrooms, like teachers can look out for teenagers who may be isolated, ensure they're grouping them up with individuals that they may get along with, you know, ensure that teenagers are fostering close social networks. I think that's very important. And I think if they're if they're looking to develop interventions, like this is a really good place to start. They can look at the different types that have been implemented, see which one can really fit best with their school. And then, and then you know, just really go from there and then and see what's feasible for them. Okay, so Tanya, what are you doing at the minute? What are you working on beyond this paper that's been published? Tell us a little bit about where you are at the moment. Yeah, so beyond this paper, I have actually just finished up some really exciting analyses uh, looking at the Oxwell data, which is this large cross-sectional survey that's sent out to schools in England. And I'm currently looking at adolescents, so secondary school students, looking at the association between friendship quality and mental health scores, uh, and also looking at friendship quality and well-being, and then trying to see some gender differences, some differences by year group. And I'm hoping to kind of use that information to inform the implementation of, of a friendship intervention. So currently doing some friendship research. 
I think I know you've done little bits and pieces for us in Tooled Up before, and we've developed nice relational aggression resources based on your work. Yes. Which is great. I think one of the things that always strikes me when I'm talking to you is I find it unbelievable. Like, it's amazing, isn't it? It's shocking how little literature there really is when you bear it all in mind, looking at friendships, like, you know, over time or some of these friendship interventions. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? I think it is. Yeah. And I think it's always surprising to me, you know, trying to find the types of friendship interventions that have been used and then also reading about the importance of friends. I think, you know, friends have really been underutilized. I think that friendships hold great potential for improving adolescent mental health and adolescent well-being. And, you know, we do know that in previous research, friendships have actually been described as a psychological vaccine against mental illness. And researchers have hypothesized that close friendships have these protective qualities that can exist as a result of the support that friends can provide, whether that be emotional during times of distress. And, you know, researchers have also found that young adults who had a close friendship during their adolescent years, they tend to experience greater, you know, enjoyment, emotional support are more sensitive and empathetic, are well-adjusted, you know, during adulthood than those adults who report not having had a close friendship during adolescence. So we do know that these close best friendships do predict higher general interpersonal happiness. And then another thing that they do is they also appear to reduce the chances of being victimized by peers. So, you know, whether somebody's getting bullied in school or just is a general target of peer victimization, if they have close friendships, these friendships can actually buffer the negative effects. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think I think friendships can be quite, everyone knows that, you know, they're beneficial, but they can also be problematic even for adults. So yeah. I think, you know, this isn't something that sort of disappears in, in, you know, after adolescence. So I think it's just relationships in general can be, you know, life enhancing, complicated. I think one of the reflective points I'm taking away as a parent listening to you is I think it's important for parents listening to to stop and pause and ask their teenagers what is going well in their friendships. Often we're very focused on, oh, does, you know, does somebody like them or is there conflict or I'm maybe quite anxious about the quality of friendships, but I think it's good to ask our children if they do get along with someone, why they think that is and what they contribute to that friendship and sort of paying attention as parents to modeling a sort of an appreciation of how a friendship in general as adults. Would you sort of agree with that, that there's a little bit more work we can do almost in terms of friendship literacy and family life? Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with you. I think it's very important for parents to be asking their their teenagers about the friendships that they've made. And, you know, just being in the general know of their teenager's social circle, like these friends that their kid is hanging out with, are they their close friends? Are they targeting them? Do they have anybody to turn to if if they are being bullied at school? Because, that, you know, you can't stop the bullying at school single-handedly. But, but having close friendships and making sure that your child has close friendships can actually be a really great buffer to any sort of targeting that they might be facing at school. So I think, you know, it's important from a young age for parents to really start talking to their kids about their social circles and encouraging them to have a wider social circle. I think that's very important because it's it's usually at this young age when when friendship begins and you know as ad, as adolescents transition and you know are in that developmental period, friendships become more important than ever. Um, they're talking to their friends more than they're talking to their parents. So so yeah, it's uh, it's a very important relationship. 
And I think it's a sort of counterbalance to the idea of, you know, they, they, they should have as many friends as, you know, diverse friendship groups, etc. I think I'd love to know your opinion on this. I always say to my children as well that not everyone's going to like them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, some people will not get them or, you know, want to be particularly close. So I think that there is a need for that kind of balancing argument within that discussion around friendship. Yeah, I agree. I mean, like children should be made aware of the fact that you might like someone and they might not like you and vice versa. So, so you know, be, being able to, to understand where they're appreciated and where they're receiving a good quality friendship, I think that's very important. Like teaching them to recognize the signs of that is very important. Yeah, that's lovely. And of course, it all speaks to resilience within friendships, doesn't it? And emotional resilience in general. Yeah. But that's a whole other podcast. (laughs) So Tanya, as always, we love speaking to you and well done on this really important paper. It's fantastically interesting. And yeah, hopefully we'll be able to speak to you again about this topic of sort of mental health interventions in school. I know it's a very interesting and dynamic area and also quite fast moving in terms of papers, you know, being published in to it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed having this discussion with you. Thank you, Tanya. All the very best. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com. Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.